your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Hey everyone, Joan Hamburg here, welcoming you to the Sunday edition. I don't know about the rest of you, but I have been the last week or two living like virus. What virus? Masks where you can't breathe? Well, I guess I could take it off. Eating inside a restaurant, which just the thought gave me an anxiety attack. I ventured out. Theater. Carnegie Hall. A glorious concert. Commissioned in honor of my pal who passed away all too young, Peter Jennings. It was quite wonderful. And, you know, theater is back even though a lot of the stars have been put down by COVID. We thought we were in the home stretch, but now it's happening again. But before it happened, I had a good time. I went to theater. In fact, I've seen a lot of plays. Take Me Out, one of the stars, going to be with us today. Paradise Square... You know, that's the show that everyone was talking about, that Garth Davinsky, the Canadian producer, brought into New York. And it's very long, two hours, 55 minutes. And it had a lot of subplots. I tell you, my head was spinning. It was about racism. It was about the Civil War. It was about riots in New York, the draft. You name it. But there is great talent in this play. And here's a woman whom I saw a long time ago. In fact, she won the Tony. I think it was in 20 for the best performance. She was really quite incredible. SAG awards, all kinds, all kinds of awards. Her name, and I hope I pronounce it right, is um, Joquina Calicongo. She plays Nellie in this play. This woman is extraordinary. Extraordinary. And I, she's been in a lot of stuff. I saw her in Slave Play. But she makes every moment of that theater experience worth it. And she does a big number near the end of the play that brings the entire audience, and it's in a big theater, come to its feet, screaming and yelling. She was quite a star, is quite a star, and quite a gift. So that was one of the plays that I saw, and so many more are coming in. I ate out. Now, again, I'm going to rethink eating inside of restaurants. I ate in a Greek restaurant called Narai, N-E-R-A-I, and that restaurant is at 55 East 54th Street. It was really good. And they have a fabulous outside, really beautiful, a garden on the side of the restaurant that had good heaters, and they had all kinds of of Greek treats. They had spanakopita and lemon potatoes, which I love. 
they had a wonderful rice dish with chopped spinach and tomatoes and a saganaki, which is a pan-fried Greek cheese. I love the spanakopita. They had individually wrapped spinach pies and really good main courses. Whether it's a poached lobster as an appetizer, you can get that. A lemon gnocchi. Good food. And a lot of different Greek dishes, too, that are delicious. A lemon brine chicken, a moussaka. Try it. I think you're really going to enjoy this restaurant. And then we go from this, it's expensive, to the extreme. A friend told me that there's a Korean chicken restaurant called Chicken Insider. At 1752 2nd Avenue, they said, you might walk by it and absolutely pay no attention. It looks like just a little hole in the wall. People line up to get takeout. They have the most delicious crispy fried chicken, dark meat only, but you can get 10 pieces of wing. They're huge for $15.99 drumsticks or combos. They come with sauces. You can get sandwiches, extra toppings. I literally went there, stood online, and got the takeout, and it was so good. I had so much that I shared it with friends and neighbors in the building. So just if you're in the city, that might be a thought, just to remind you. And hey, don't forget, I've got a great show coming straight ahead. You're really going to enjoy it. And I have one of my favorite doctors coming on to visit us. He tells the truth. He knows what's going on more than anyone else. His name is Dr. Michael Osterholm. And you're going to hear the latest. Are we getting a fifth wave of COVID? Help. We had enough. What should we do? And a very famous actor is coming to visit, too. So I need you there. Come join me. We'll have a party. It's the Joan Hamburg Show every Sunday, starting at 2. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. At this time of year, New Yorkers are always talking about the Easter Parade. And for some people, it comes as a shock to find out this isn't like the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade or the St. Patrick's Day Parade is a very informal, unorganized, free event that, come on along, anyone can participate. You show up on Fifth Avenue from 49th to 57th Street, right near St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. People start arriving around 10 in the morning and they're busy mingling and mixing and showing off their hats and their finery and they bring their kids and their pets and everyone is done up. They're in their Sunday best. Then the question that we get is, so where do you eat? Well, opentable.com lists a lot of restaurants, a lot, and they're in New York City, Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Westchester, and upstate New York. They even allow you to reserve outdoor seating. 
So let me just give you a little preview of what we found. Carmine's, very popular family restaurant with the Times Square branch, 200 West 44th Street, or another branch on the Upper West Side, Broadway, 2450 Broadway, will accommodate a large group, and they're doing a regular menu and specials. The one on 44th Street is pretty close to where people mingle for the parade. A Greek restaurant we love, Kalari Taverna on West 44th Street, has a $49.95 all-course, three-course, all-day menu on April 17th. It comes with a Bloody Mary or a screwdriver and a lot of our favorite Greek goodies. Baked shrimp and mussels in tomato sauce, topped with feta, spanakopita, phyllo dough with fresh spinach, feta cheese and leeks, calamari with feta and herbs, and Atlantic salmon, Icelandic char, chicken, you name it, they have it, and they have wonderful desserts. And that's a good place to know. It's happy and fun with good food. And Orsay, a bistro on Lexington Avenue in 75th Street, you can make your reservation on open table. They're doing a two-course Easter brunch for $59, price fixed until 4 o'clock, and it's a really good menu. Then if you want to splurge the glamorous and gorgeous Tavern on the Green, Go in at 67th Street and Central Park West. They're doing a special Easter Sunday meal. Brunch from 9 to 3.30. Dinner from 5 until 9. 125 a person. I do suggest a reservation. And they have a really good menu. They have lobster, eggs, Benedict, wonderful vegetables, a ricotta French toast a leg of lamb with baby vegetables, striped bass, dessert, soup, really good things. And, of course, you are going to pay for it, but it's gorgeous. Tavern on the Green, 212-877-8684. And happy Easter to one and all. Now stay tuned because we've got a lot more on the Joan Hamburg Show. Stay with me. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And perfect timing for the good doctor, Dr. Michael Osterholm, who's director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. A professor, work with the president, one of our leading authorities when it comes to this. And Dr. Osterholm, this morning, you couldn't miss a paper without the story about the dread virus on the front page. Are we about to enter the fifth wave of this thing, just as mandates are lifted? Well, you know, Joan, we don't know. Uh, what's happening is there is one of the subvariants of Omicron, or one of the viruses that evolved out of the original Omicron virus, BA2, has been shown in some countries in Europe to be more infectious and causing uh, what appears to be a burst in cases. 
On the other hand, there's at least 15 countries in Europe where case numbers are going up also, but BA2 is not. And so it really remains a question as to just how much BA2 is contributing to increased transmission or not. So I wish I could give you a better answer to say other than this is a state tuned moment. And uh, I think the bottom line message is that this virus is not done with us yet. And whether it's BA2 or it's one of the other new variants that are going to emerge in the future, uh, we've got to be mindful that just because we're done with this virus doesn't mean it's done with us. But Ben, as we're waiting to see what's going to happen, what do we do? People are so relieved in our city. They think it's over. Restaurants well, you know, are packed. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of a deja vu all over moment again. Remember, it was a year ago right now that uh, the big January peak that occurred in 2021 uh, was very rapidly decreasing. And in addition, we had vaccines flowing. And so people just assumed that, you know, this was over with and done. And there were some of us out here, myself, uh, one of them, who said, wait a minute, hold on. You know, this this virus isn't done with us yet. And the darkest days of the pandemic can still be ahead of us. And I said that based on what I saw was these evolving variants, these these mutated viruses that were basically either more infectious, more likely to cause serious illness uh, or evade the immune protection of previous infections or an ultimately vaccine. Well, you saw what happened. Delta and Omicron showed up over the course of the next months. And, you know, we don't know what the next variant is going to be. I can hope that we're done with all the severe waves. But as we know, hope is not a strategy. So we've got to be better prepared to, uh, you know, if in fact we see a new variant arise that is challenging the immune protection of our vaccines um, and even having been previously infected, we just need to look at that carefully. I would say I do not believe that the public will tolerate any more lockdowns or major restrictions. And that's exactly why many of the uh, mandates were lifted this past spring. It had nothing to do with the public health recommendations. It had to do with governors reading the tea leaves, saying right. the public's not going to take them anymore. We're not going to do them. So I don't, I don't think even if we see a big increase in cases, we're going to see a return to the days of some kind of mandates. Well, you know, I was inside a restaurant for the first time in years and it was packed, and no one walked in with a mask. And I said to the people at our table, you know, we really should put masks on this place as a super spreader before we eat. And, you know, the general consensus was, I don't care. I don't care too much. No more masks, no more this. And I have a 10-year-old who wants to go to theater. And I'm looking at all these numbers, and theater again is starting to have actors by the sidelines now because they're getting it all over again. We don't know what to do. Do we take kids into these circumstances? Well, you know, first of all, the good news is, and I think there is some good news, is that despite the fact that these cases occurring, as you just described, and of course, we're all following with some interest, the super spreading event that just occurred at the gridiron uh, dinner that was held last Saturday night in Washington, D.C., where there clearly have been a number of cases of, you know, prominent politicians and government officials and media at that. I think the message that's good is, is that uh, with having had at least three doses of vaccine, 
And now considering for those who are older, immune compromised, four doses of vaccine, the severity of the illness, the likelihood of being hospitalized, the likelihood of dying is much, much lower. And so for many who are getting infected, it's a couple uncomfortable days, but it's not at the same level of risk that we saw in previous uh, waves of this disease where people were dying. So, you know, I, I think this really speaks to why you still want to get vaccinated. You know, even if this vaccine is not going to prevent me from getting infected, if it can keep me out of the hospital, keep me from having severe illness and I don't die, boy, what a bargain it is to get that vaccine. Well, a question then about the vaccine and the booster. Wednesday, I got an alert, 8 o'clock at night, I remember looking at the time, saying that the Pfizer booster for the fourth shot in Israel only proved to be effective for about two weeks. Now, could that have been a hoax, or is that real? No, well, yeah, it's not a hoax. Let me let me add further de- uh, description to that, though. That is the fourth dose data, and it's actually about four weeks out in terms of actually uh, the level of preventing infection is increased, meaning that you actually don't even you know get clinically ill. But yeah, after that, then you start to have a similar picture of clinical illness. The frequency with which you get sick if you are exposed to the virus is the same um, as if you only had three doses. But what is different and what we're following carefully is there still was evidence of ongoing protection against serious illness, hospitalizations and deaths. And again, if we can buy that in this pandemic, that is a tremendous, tremendous boost. And so uh, the Israeli data right now actually does support the importance of these fourth doses in the limited time that, that they were able to be followed against the, those outcomes. And, of course, that's, I'll, I'll take that any day of the week. But then a question, Dr. Osterholm, if you originally got a Pfizer and now you're going to get the fourth, should you switch to the Moderna, which apparently lasts longer? Or what should people do? And can you switch safely? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think at this point, it's uh, fair to say the data are unclear. We don't have really good data saying you get more protection if you did Pfizer first and Moderna, Moderna, Pfizer. Early on, Moderna looked to be uh, a bit better than Pfizer. But remember two things. One is the dose of the uh, Moderna vaccine was higher. And it was given actually at four weeks after the first uh-huh. dose, unlike Pfizer, which was given at three weeks. And we know now that the longer you wait after that first dose to get the second dose, there is still some better improvement in how your immune system responds. So when it all equals out, I don't think the data are at all compelling to say, yes, screen, you know, go ahead and, uh, you know, get Moderna if you've already had Pfizer. The Moderna doses now are half of the uh, level of virus vaccine that they were before uh, relative to the booster. So I I think, you know, the really important message here is get it, get it. That's what even if it's a full week window. Yep, yep, yep. Get it. Yes. Okay. And then what about home testing? Is that a good thing to do? Should we all be doing that if we're out and about? Yeah. Home testing is a good thing. Remember, it will not protect you from getting infected. But if you are infected and you can pick it up early, then you know to adjust your life so that you're not exposing others. And that's important. Now, the only challenge I have is that with some of these home tests, you don't pick up infection right away. Meaning you can go three, four, up to five days 
into your illness before the test turns positive, Mm -hmm. which unlike that with the PCR testing, the kind of testing that we do in the laboratory, that actually is much more sensitive and will pick up infections in the earliest days of their infection. And uh, another question that a listener had said, it was about platelets. She said that after her original vaccinations, that the doctor noticed that her platelet level, which had been in the high normal range, was now below normal, not dangerous, but below normal, and said that they have seen some activity with platelets after the vaccine. Now, is there any truth to that? We actually have seen some cases of thrombosis where basically it's called blood kind of clotting in your system uh, that the platelets surely are involved with. Um, This is a a very, very low risk situation. Uh, It surely can be serious if it occurs. But in our business, we have to compare the risk of not being vaccinated and what happens to you if you get COVID, which, by the way, the incidence of thrombosis with COVID is actually much higher than the risk of getting it from the vaccine. So you're, you're, you're not just trading protection against COVID, right. but even thrombosis itself. So, yeah, that can possibly happen. Again, it's very low risk. But um, this is one of the trade-offs. You know, it's any kind of medication. Look at all the medications. If you take aspirin, there's a trade-off in terms of what the benefit is versus sometimes it can cause an adverse event. And so I can say with certainty that the vaccines that we have today save many, 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 many more lives than if they put someone at risk because of an adverse event. And when I had talked to you in the past, you had issued the warning about masks. Everyone was making these adorable little homemade masks, Uh and you pointed out, forget about it. You know, you've got to wear the really good mask if you want protection. Is that still, are masks still an effective way of trying to prevent the virus getting into your system? Well, as you just very correctly uh, stated, that has been my position from the early days of the pandemic, because early on we saw that, in fact, the transmission of this virus is occurring as an aerosol, these very, very tiny, fine particles that are in the air. You understand an aerosol, be in a room with somebody who's smoking. And if, can you, how can you smell that smoke through whatever you're wearing? Because smoke is an aerosol. If you're in a department store and you're three aisles away from the perfume section, but now you can smell it, that's an aerosol. And so the only way to protect yourself against aerosols, in this case the virus in that aerosol, is to wear a high-quality respiratory protection piece like an N95 respirator. The other ones really become more window dressing, you know, and that's not it. And then on top of it, Joe, one of the challenges we have is the fact that so many people who even do wear some kind of protection, Joan, will wear it underneath their nose. It turns into a chin diaper, and that doesn't do any good at all. Well, COVID cases are climbing in our area. At that stage, if you had to, and you already said, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen with it, would you say it's okay if people continue to eat inside of restaurants when you know that they have to take off their masks at a certain point? What about going into crowded theaters? Is this a good time to start getting life back again, or should we be more cautious? Well, first of all, as I stated earlier, the public is done with this pandemic. And so, you know, you have to uh, 
if you can't have an argument with an avalanche and expect to win, okay, it's going to win. So, so what you have to do basically is understand. And so, what can I do to have the most impact in protecting people's lives or health? And the most important thing we can do is say, among those who have risk factors for severe disease, older, underlying immune deficiencies, cancers, diabetes. People like that, if they get infected, are much more likely to have severe illness. So I would tell them, you have to take more control of your life than ever, getting fully vaccinated, wearing an N95 if you're in public places or public spaces. Um, and, and that can go a long ways. Have a backup plan. If you do get infected, how are you going to get the drugs that you need? We have some very effective drugs today. Paxlovid is one of them that if you get it within five days of your onset can do a great deal to reduce your likelihood of having serious illness. Well, don't wait to get COVID to know what you're going to do, who you're going to call, you know, your doctor. How can you get through? Can you get through? And so I think that's the one other thing you can do. And then finally, just know that as many people are seeing a lot of people with mild illness, they are. There's no doubt about it. And they say, ah, this is nothing. And the challenge with that is, is that not everyone is going to be mild. And so we don't want people to take a risk. That's why getting vaccinated, even if you get infected, is going to do so much to reduce your risk of having severe illness, hospitalizations, or death. Right. So the fourth booster is something everyone should consider over a certain age. 50 years of age and older, I would surely encourage it for those who are immune compromised, underlying health conditions that put them at increased risk of severe disease, I would encourage them to get it too. You know, it's not a panacea, it's not perfect, it's not gonna prevent you necessarily down the road from getting infected, but we are looking carefully at just what can we do to reduce severe illness. That's a really big part of our efforts right now. I thank you so much for your time, Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll talk again soon, and I hope we've got better news. I do, too. Thanks a lot, Joan, and thanks for getting such important information out. Appreciate all your efforts to keep uh, that factual information coming. I'm grateful to you. We'll talk again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're all listening to WABC. More to come. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Take Me Out, which is the Tony Award-winning show written by Richard Greenberg, has come back to the Helen Hayes Theater. I don't know if it was there. I forget where I first saw it. But it's at the Helen Hayes Now on West 44th Street. And among the stars is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. And I have to tell you, I saw the show the other day, and I had seen it years ago. And this show, which centers around a baseball star, a mixed race superstar who comes out as gay and is suddenly dealing with things he never thought he'd have to deal with because he's playing baseball and he's great at it about homophobia, racial prejudice. This show is as relevant now as it was when I saw it. I I forget, I think it was 2002. And it was a huge hit everywhere, and now a big hit back on Broadway. And Jesse Tyler Ferguson, who 
you know from all his Broadway work and from Modern Family, where he reigned for 11 years, he has a wonderful pivotal role in this. He plays the financial manager who is also gay to this big baseball team. And this show took some time, like a lot of major Broadway scheduled openings, the pandemic came up and they had to wait. And in your case, Jesse, it was what, two years? A lot happened to you in that two year period. That's that's right. Yeah, two years. We were supposed to premiere this in 2020. Uh, and we were in our second week of rehearsal when um, everything shut down. So we had, we had started on the work, but we hadn't gotten to the point of actually getting onto the stage yet. Um, but at that time, I was, you know, expecting to be a, a father for the first time. My son was going to be born in Ju- July. And so, you know, I was able to uh, focus on that. And now I have a toddler and here I am doing <laughs> doing Take Me Out on Broadway and, you know, with a little less energy than I would have back in 2020 because now I'm a dad and running around after a toddler. Certainly no sleep. I mean, that takes a really long time, but an exciting time, too. And such a different yes. experience, even though you've done a lot of Broadway, from being in a major comedy or a big TV show, Modern Family, for 11 years. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's a great luxury and something that doesn't happen a lot to actors that we actually get steady work for a long time. And it felt like I had like a you know, a real job. Like my, my mom was a nurse and my dad was a microbiologist. And I was like, oh, I'm just like my parents. You know, I got to work every day and do the same thing. And it's great. And then, uh, then you know, the reality of what it actually is to be an actor came with, uh, with that show ending. And of course, then everything shut down for two years. So at least I, you know, didn't have any sort of fear of missing out on anything. We were all sort of in the same boat. But I'm so happy to be doing what I love doing again. Um, I, I love being an actor and I certainly love theater. I mean, it's my first love, it's, as you, as you said, Joan, I mean, that's how I started my career. And, um, you know, TV was this sort of happy accident that happened to me. And I was thrilled that I got to do something so meaningful and uh, resonant for so long, but I can't tell you how exciting it is for me to be back on a New York stage with this play particularly. And it's a play that I also saw, um, back in uh, 2002 at, yeah, when it first premiered at the public theater. And then I saw it again when it transferred to Broadway. And it's deeply meaningful to me. Um, and one of the reasons I, I saw it three times, and one of the reasons I saw it three times was because of the performance that Dennis O'Hare gave in the role of Mason Marzak. I just thought it was revolutionary. And uh, I, I had never seen acting like that on stage before and with such beautiful language. I just love the play itself as well. And it thought it was beautifully directed. And so I, it was a play that really um, struck a chord with me. And I'm not a baseball fan. So it, it was, you know, that, it kind of took me by surprise. Um, but, you know, your character, to... your character, yes. who is not obviously, he's the money manager. He's not a baseball guy. And all of a sudden we grow with him and his obsession with baseball. And I'm telling you, Jesse, I'm not going to look at baseball the same way. For some reason, this version of the show, I don't know why it affected me so much, but it did. Mm. And I did see it the first time, maybe two times at downtown and then when it came to Broadway. But 
there was something about this that resonates with almost all of yeah. us. And it, it's very, well, we're all very a different special. Time. Yeah. 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 We're in a different okay. time 20 years later. And, you know, it's a play that when Richard Greenberg wrote it, he thought it was, it needed to go on stage quickly because it was only a matter of time before a major league baseball player um, would, would come out of the closet. And here we are 20 years later, and that hasn't happened. And there are these, you know, lines in the play about democracy and, you know, baseball is better than democracy because unlike democracy, baseball acknowledges loss. And here we are, you know, mm-hmm. on the heels of uh, a president who refused to leave office. It's like there are lines in the play that people assume we wrote for the times we're in now. And, and didn't. they're not. They're not written for today. They're, they're words that were written 20 years ago. And it does resonate in a much different way. And, you know, I think time away from any piece of art makes you reflect on it. I mean, I, I realized I had been reflecting on this play for 20 years. So when I read it again, I looked at it with different eyes. And that's a great thing about, you know, being able to revisit great work. You know what else I, because I've been trying to see as much as I can see, because none of us could do anything for all those years. The mm-hmm. audience is different. The audience, and mm-hmm. it's only from seeing three or four shows so far, the audience is so eager to embrace this experience, your yeah. show and yeah. other shows. It's like they're so grateful to be there. The house gets so yeah. quiet. The anticipation is so large. And you know, at the end of the show, especially if you see it on a matinee day, they get up, they want to make their buses, trains, whatever. No one got <laughs> up. They were like, I just yeah. have to absorb this another minute. And yeah. it's special. Right. And especially with yeah. you guys waiting two years, none of us knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. We all thought maybe a few yeah. weeks the most. Right. Right. Well, I think it's one of those things that, you know, when something's taken away from you, you realize that you've taken it for granted. And, you know, it's, it's the fact that we get to come back and we get to celebrate live theater together again under different circumstances, you know, everyone's masked and, you know, we're having to show vaccination records before getting to the theater. But right. I, we're I, like all, I think the audiences that are showing up, that are leaving their house and coming in, are so grateful to be there. And we definitely feel that. No, without question. And you guys waited, uh, waited a long time for this and got this wonderful part. I had no clue yeah. that you were, I remember you wrote a cookbook called what was it between <laughs> it was food between friends was that the right. name of the cookbook that's right that you yes. did a while ago i never yes. knew you were such a foodie was that from growing up well, where did all this come from uh yeah well my my mom you know would cook for me but she uh you know this, she was a working mother who you know made meals for her her family as, as many working parents do um it was after i moved to los angeles and with you know that move i was able to inherit a little bit more space you get more you get more uh real estate for your money in los angeles and i had a larger kitchen you know i i and my kitchens in new york were always the size of a postage right. stamp all of so us. i just i never really you know i never yeah exactly i never i never cooked in new york and so once i was in la i, I it's a hobby i started and you know i i I wanted to actually go to culinary school, but, uh, you know, modern family, the schedule of modern family didn't allow for that. So 
uh, it's something that I sort of taught myself how to do. And I'm a cookbook collector. And um, I, one of my very close friends went to culinary school and would cook with me and sort of teach me certain, you know, techniques that she learned. And we just started developing recipes together. And that's what the cookbook ended up stemming from. Uh, but it was also a project that uh, we got to finish in the pandemic, which was a nice thing to uh, to focus on. Um, you, know, able, you know, we weren't able to necessarily gather in person to finish working on the cookbook. We did a lot of things over Zoom and, you know, over phone calls and text messages. But uh, it was a nice project to sort of focus on and, uh, you know, pour my creative energy into. Uh, I'm really proud of it. It's a, it's a really great book, if you ask me. <laughs> No, I, I think it's fantastic. And is your husband a foodie too, like you? Yes, he's a foodie, but he does not cook. He's an so eater. I, I'm, I'm, he doesn't. He's an eater, Joan. He doesn't even do the dishes. No. <laughs> well, he's smart. <laughs> His mother probably told him, "If you start doing them, that's yeah. it." Yeah. I know my it. mom. Well, he never started, so. Never. Right. My mom used to tell me that about ironing. She said, you know, I could teach you to iron. The problem is once you start, you're stuck. Yeah. You're be ironing forever. <laughs> and that's that's like food. Is he an actor? No, no. He's actually a producer. Um, well, he's a, he's a lawyer and then he uh, he works with, with a lot of nonprofits. He worked on the Proposition Marriage Equality case. Uh, oh, he's so. done so many wonderful things. Um but recently, he, he's actually won two Tony Awards in the past few years for okay. uh, as being a producer of the Oklahoma Revival and then also The Inheritance. And this past season, um, he helped bring uh, Dana H. and Is This a Room to Broadway, which I'm so proud of. Um, I've, those are two plays that I, I greatly admired and um, you know really pushed the boundaries of what theater can be. So uh, he's – and actually, we're um, – uh, we uh, are – producing a documentary about Broadway's return after COVID right now. So that's something that we're in the final stages of editing. Um, so hopefully that will be something that we can all see soon. So, you know, he's got his hand in a lot of pots. That's, that's a great idea. And did I read that even when you were eight years old, you knew you wanted to be in theater and got involved with a kids group? Or was that? Yeah. Little... I, I, mean, I can't remember a time when I, I remember seeing uh, a, a play, and, and my mom took me to go see a children's theater production of Alice in Wonderland or something, and I remember sitting in the audience thinking, oh, I want to be on stage. I don't want to be watching this. I want to be on stage. And I told my mom that, and I was a very quiet kid. I was an introvert. I was an indoor kid. You know, I, I didn't have a... I was shy. So my mom was shocked that this was something that I wanted to do, and I think she, you know, was encouraged that I wanted to do it. And so I joined the Albuquerque, Albuquerque Children's Theater, and... Uh, you know, uh, did plays with them for, you know, five or six years. And it was, you know, it was my, it was my favorite thing to do. It was, you know, I, I, I didn't have a theater program in the school I went to. So it was just fun extracurricular thing that I got to do. And it's where I felt like my people were, you know, I, uh, I, I just loved being around other artists, even at that age. Yeah. Well, and it's a gift. And then you really, including food, never looked back. Mm -hmm. And you've worked. Yeah. yeah. Did you do? No, I'm I've trying been very, to remember very fortunate. Right, lots of Broadway. But what? how did the television thing come? 
That was an incredible well, run. Yeah. Thank you. Um, when I was doing um, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee on Broadway, uh, the uh, writers David Crane and Jeffrey Cleric, uh, who were famous for you know working on Mad About You and Friends, came to see Spelling Bee, and they were casting a sitcom called The Class. And uh, I got a role on that TV show. So that's what actually brought me to Los Angeles. And it was a cast. It was a great cast, actually. Um, Heather Goldenhirsch was in it, and Julie Halston, and Sam Harris, and mm-hmm. Lizzie Kaplan, and Jason Ritter. Uh, it was directed by James Burroughs, who directed all of Cheers, and you know, Frasier, and uh, you know, MASH. You know, he's an icon in, in the TV industry. And that show, unfortunately, only lasted one season, but that sort of made my mark in the, the TV landscape. And a few years later, they were casting Modern Family, and... Uh, then I, I, I got that job. So, you know, I, I, I was sort of swept away uh, to uh, Los Angeles unexpectedly. It was, I, I always thought that I would be coming back to New York sooner than later. And now I've actually probably lived in Los Angeles longer than I've lived in New York, which is shocking to me. Uh, well, yeah, L.A., everyone complains, but it's a way of life that sort of becomes irresistible for a lot of people. Now, are you... Yeah. Yeah. What do you do about New York? You're he- all here now? Yes, yes, I have my family with me here. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we we love coming to New York. And this is the first time that I've gotten to come to New York and work on a play since being a dad. So I'm figuring out, you know, how to manage my time with that. And uh, But we have a, I, I have a place here in New York that I, you know, come back to a lot. So it's, it's nice. I, I truly get to live uh, the bi-coastal lifestyle, which is something I'm very grateful for. Right. And have you changed your feelings about baseball now that you have sort of an insider's <laughs> view? It's so funny, Joan, because I, we, we got a private tour of Yankee Stadium last week. Um, and I was, I was happy to go. Um, it was, you know, something I was like, well, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But then I got there, and I, we got to run around on the field, you know, with these with the empty stands. And there's a part in the play where Mason says, you know, uh, I, I had for several minutes, I had an entire stadium entirely to myself, and that was thrilling. And that's how I felt. I felt thrilled by it, and I, I, it made me want to see a baseball game, and it made me, you know, I, I definitely have a deeper respect and understanding um, for the people who are baseball fanatics um i you know had to sort of immerse myself in this world and i'm with all these guys who love baseball and it's i'm sort of having the same trajectory as my character mason does in the play i'm slowly falling in love with it in a really profound way right and and for people i mean my family my husband a fanatic baseball and football ay 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 you know it was too, (laughs) too much but i never got i said it's a team. You know, I can understand if we were all players, but fans are incredible. And for many people, yeah, this true. is life changing. And yeah. even, and in well, your show. How I feel about, yeah. Go yeah. ahead. That yeah. what? Well, I was going to say, I think about, you know, that we we're just talking about how great the audiences are in, on Broadway. And I, you know, I can associate it with that. Like, you know, the people who love theater love it so deeply and it means so much to them. 
And so I use that I, when I'm thinking about baseball. I sometimes replace my feeling of theater with baseball, and that, that gives me that joy, and that's why I can go to those emotional places on stage because I understand what it is, what it feels like to be so emotionally connected to something um, because I, that's how I feel about theater. And you know um, the star player whom you are the financial manager for, during mm-hmm. the intermission, when I got up, I love to hear what people are saying, and they were all saying, well, I think that Darren is Derek Jeter. And that was like oh, yeah. <laughs> the ladies on the ladies' room line. That's what they were talking about. <laughs> you know, trying to guess who he was. Yeah. And there right. we go. Yeah. Yeah, we so. certainly modeled off of a Derek Jeter type of presence in baseball for sure. Yeah, well, and, and the obsession that fans have yeah. All of it. it, it yeah. This this is quite an amazing play. And you lucked out. You're the only star who doesn't have to walk nude on the stage. So you can <laughs> eat away during this. <laughs> yes. I, I eat lots of pizza and cupcakes in front of my cast members, and they hate me for it. So, and you're the cooker. Do you have the chance to bring them your homemade things? I'm, I'm, I, they keep asking me to bring them in something to eat, and I, I haven't had time yet, but I, I will do that for them, yes. Well, I wish you the longest run. It's a wonderful Broadway <laughs> experience. Take me out. It's at the Helen Hayes Theater. And, boy, when I saw it, it was packed. It was a sold-out house, yes. which is very exciting. And Broadway is the heart yes. of New York, so take advantage. It will make you feel so good. And we all need to feel good. I thank you. I wish you congratulations. Enjoy your family. All the best. Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Thank you, Joan. Anytime, Jesse. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. This year, the first night of Passover is Friday, April 15th. That's Good Friday, too, and then Sunday is Easter. So we'll start with Passover. We have been asked by several of you, if alone, is there any place we can go where we'll feel part of a community? So, yes, yes, there are plenty. If you're looking for a group SEDA, online or in person, and you don't want to be alone over the holidays, or maybe you have a group that's small and you want to take them all and go someplace, we found a really good resource that will help you in New York City, Long Island, Westchester, and a virtual SEDA that anyone can attend. The UJA Federation of New York put together a fantastic list. Go on their website, UJAF. D-N-Y.org, U-J-A-F-E-D-N-Y.org, and press the button on their homepage, find a SEDA. And if you don't have a computer, call them at 212-980-1000 and see, they'll help you. The website lists the SEDAs open to the public. They're by groups and they include virtual 
the Bronx, Brooklyn, Long Island, Manhattan, Staten Island, and Westchester. And it's a really good thing. And I think you're going to enjoy it. Like in Manhattan, they give everything from an orthodox on Port Washington Street in New York City. Hudson Yards has a synagogue that's open. The Jewish Center on West 86th Street. A whole list. Park East. Things that you're really going to enjoy. So don't feel alone. You don't have to be. All these places are saying, come and share. The prices are very reasonable. And if you don't want to do that, then they tell you, or we're going to tell you, how you can do this online. So now I'm looking up, and we are coming right up to the 3 o'clock. So enjoy the rest of the day right here on WAVC, and come on back. This is where you belong every Sunday, starting at 2. I'm Joan Hamburg. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.